Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the 155th edition of the Frank and Stan Chat. And uh, we don't have sort of major records, but we have we are breaking one today because uh, Lucy Truman is back for the fourth time. So thank you, Lucy. And I know you've stepped in really with about half an hour's notice because the guest who was due to be with us, Dan Morrow, uh, unfortunately, as, as uh, an event has happened and uh, he can't make it this morning. So thank you so much for stepping in. Um, and uh, yeah, in a way, I mean, it, it, just introduce yourself, Lucy, to those who perhaps haven't watched some of the other editions. So who are you? Uh, what's that business you run and what sort of stuff do you do? So I'm Lucy Truman. I'm the um, founder and managing director of Truman Change, which is a management consultancy which helps public sector organisations to do change and transformation differently, better, quicker, kinder, um, various things that we're trying to work on and improve around how organisations do change. Um, and I'm also doing, at the moment, I'm not doing direct client work myself, my team are, but I'm doing a full-time master's in organisational psychology uh, where my research is very much around how particularly local authorities manage change during the pandemic and what that means for them going forward. Um, and the, the line I keep coming back to with that is nobody picked a Prince 2 manual during COVID. So right. can we all stop pretending that's the way to do change? So <laughs> so my, my head is very much in a sort of study, reflective psychology space, which is a, a real privilege at the moment. And it's and it's lovely to be back. And I, and I know Stan from years ago, he was my line manager before I set my own business up. So We've known each other a long time. I've taught, taught you everything you knew. You missed that bit. I've taught you everything you knew. Or one of us taught the other. I can't remember which one. <laughs> um, and also, uh, for those watching on the video, you've got a little uh, furry friend. Rabbit here, yeah. <laughs> a little rabbit. If, if you... Um, if, if you what if you're watching or if you're listening to this on the podcast, I suggest you watch the video. That's, <laughs> he will that, pop up. That is one of the cutest little rabbits. He's seen. quite a big rabbit. He's not it that is, big. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also foster for um, Rossendale Animal Rescue, which is a shout out to them if anybody feels like donating <laughs> to an animal rescue. Um, so I, oh, I'm always surrounded by many, many animals. And at the moment, we've got Thumper the rabbit with me. Wow. Well, it's as if he's prepared. Is it a he? Yes. Yeah. Look, he's, he, if you, you've got to watch the video because he, he he's playing the the part really well because he's just captured <laughs> in that little bottom corner of the of the screen. Anyway, Stan, how are you this week? Uh, well, it's been an interesting week. I managed to lose my front tooth on uh, on Monday, uh, so uh, it's been a case of try and find a, a dentist. Well, the dentist that I use and and him call out to him if we call the people out mr habibi at um at Clegg's lane dental practice because having told me all the things he can't do he then said but sometimes we've just got to be creative and i'll find a way of doing it now that will might not be permanent might not even last the day but it'll solve a problem until a later date when you can rethink everything right so really, really a, good service eating a crumpet i believe yeah Breakfast just before we were due to go to North Wales for a week. Tooth, tooth snapped off. <laughs> Not Mrs. in North Wales. No, Mrs. Johnson, how did she take it? Uh, quite well because uh, I was I was not taking it very well, so <laughs> so she had to take a different role suddenly. <laughs> uh, okay, well, um, it, thanks anyway, Lucy, for coming back, and uh, 
we're into the normal sort of what's called RI this week. Um, and uh, strangely, we've not had too much political activity this week. Uh, it couldn't get any busier, could it, than last week? But anyway, what's caught your eye this week, Stan? Well, for me, it's it's corporate responsibility or collaborative responsibility. Collective it's responsibility. About, yeah, it's about the group of people having made a decision, accepting that that's the decision and unanimously saying that's the decision because that's the process we believe in. And I think there was a, an error in, in the way the House worked this week. This is the House could, of, House of, of Commons. Parliament. Yeah. That, that they could have had a final vote to say, we and it could have been whipped, we all agree with the outcome of the vote. And that way you can you can get back to one whether whether Parliament is sovereign or not, because you can't have it both ways. And I think there's a few MPs at the moment who are trying to have it both ways. Parliament's sovereign, but uh, not in this case, because it didn't come up with the answer that I wanted yeah, it to. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we do it with governors on appointment. After an appointment of a head teacher, for example, the governors take a second vote, which is to approve the appointment. And that's regardless of how the vote went originally on, you know, you can have a really tight 5-4 split on a candidate. But once that candidate's been appointed, then there's there's a corporate vote that says we agree with this appointment. And I, I think it's, it's an underused technique when you've got... Um, people democratically disagreeing but having to come to a result based on the number of votes mm. and if you can then un- undo some of the tension that causes by saying right okay we you know we've had an argument some people have fallen out the decision is this can we all now just sit down and agree that that's the decision it's a different vote you're not voting for the individual person you're voting for the if you like, for your own system to say that's the system and we're voting to say that that system works and we believe in it. And I just think that that collective responsibility then kills some of the tension, stops the arguments continuing, uh, and it, it makes it, I don't know, a firm decision. I, I've been on the end of, of times when people have not made a decision. Uh, a couple of, uh, I think it was a couple of deputy headships I went for, where the governors in the end decided not to appoint because they couldn't agree between two candidates, which which meant neither candidate got the post. <laughs> and it's it it needs something another step in, in for me in that system to stop that happening. I think for me, I mean, I, I I'm pretty certain that my MP um, abstained, and I feel as though that I I respect her decision to abstain, but. I agree with you. I, st- I feel as though there should have been another vote beyond that that said, well, this is now the, yeah, the outcome of this. You know, yeah. we're, we're, we're all going through uh, the lobby to, to say we are content, shall we say, yeah. with the decision of the House. But because I feel as though by, uh, there were so few um, Conservative MPs sitting on the benches you know, as if they were taking turns to sort of just, you know, I'll do my 10 minutes and I'll go off and then you come and whatever. That actually, I think it it, it was it was undermining the process. Yeah. 
I did hear that that from one MP who was there and did vote in support that they hadn't expected to be a vote at the end. They expected what they call nodding through, where where everybody just oh yeah, and but it it was somebody triggered Labour triggered it, didn't they? Because the vote, to, so yeah. then they had to go and yeah. And, but but I find that quite staggering, really. I mean, this is such a significant uh, vote that I would have expected everybody to who could have been there to have been there, not e- even those that were sort of paired up. You know, whereas if you can't, you, you decide that you, you know somebody was going to sort of vote and cover for you because you can't be there. But I would have thought this was a sort of three line whip type thing where you know everybody's got to get there, and and actually there's something about hearing the messages from the part from the group um as an mp you know even it doesn't look good for the government it doesn't look good for that that party but actually there are times in life i've just got to sit through this it's Mm. painful i wish it didn't happen but actually you know many times i've thought oh i've mucked something up you know i wish it could be somewhere else but i can't you know i'm gonna have to front it up you know and just take the medicine sort of thing I think sometimes there's a, there's a weakness. I'll, I'll state with schools now, where people think it's democratic. For example, to ask the staff, "We're going to have a new math scheme. Let let's have a vote on it," <laughs> and and you, you get a, a vote that's split. So you've got half the staff who were already against yeah. the, the the possibility of using this new math scheme. It just it just doesn't work. I can mm. numerous times saying. This isn't a democracy. I might ask your views, but this they isn't. They might influence my thinking, but at the end yeah, of the day, yeah, I'll make the yeah, decision yeah. at the end of the day. That's interesting because I think Lucy, you're going to talk about something that's a little bit along this line, isn't it? Really, in terms of recruitment. Yeah, I, d- I did just want to say we do a lot of um, co-production work with with public sector organisations, and one of the pieces of advice I give to senior leaders is. You don't you co you don't co-produce the what, you co-produce the how, which is very much in line with what you've just said, Stan, of there are certain things that it's not a democracy, and there are certain things that as a leader it is your responsibility to set the journey and set the kind of direction. But where I do think that co-production works really well is when you say, Okay, everybody, this is what we're trying to build, this is what we're trying to work towards. Now let's figure out how we get there. That's where I think that kind of I wouldn't say democratic because it's not necessarily voting, but that really strong engagement with people goes really well. Um, I do think I've I've not followed the politics that closely this week. Um, I do think there's something about um, politics, and, and I know you've had Councillor Amlar on the podcast before, so maybe you need to have him back and ask the, back, yeah. <laughs> the question. But I think there's something about um, kind of the the visibility of it and the council culture type thing where. It's it's getting more and more difficult, I think, for people to really nail the colours to the mast. And we're almost creating a bit of a political culture where we don't do that. We don't say, actually, I might have been wrong about this or I've changed my mind about this. It's very difficult for MPs to do that. And I, and I don't feel like that's a healthy environment. I don't know what the answer is because it's just very, it's quite toxic, isn't it? Politics, it is, yeah. In terms of the public's perception of it and wanting to tear apart everything that everybody decides or backs um, so yeah, it's it's a complicated one. I do think part of it is accepted that it's a strength to say, actually, on on the latest information, <laughs> I, I've decided that that maybe I wasn't thinking the right way before. I've changed my mind. I, uh, yeah. Tom Tugan did it live on air, didn't he? Yes. 
I don't know if you saw that. He he was saying that, that he was going to abstain. And there were a couple of callers on who, who made their views very clear. And he sort of sat there at the end and he said, do you know what? I think I, I was mistaken. And I, I think now I'm going to go and vote and I'll be voted in favour of... And and that, for me, that was real strength. It wasn't a weakness at all. It was somebody saying, yeah, in the light of new information, mm. I've, I've changed. I'm not nailed to some some rhetoric that that's sort of steers my life. And I know last week we had, uh, I think we mentioned that Sir Michael Wilshaw, who's the chief inspector of Ofsted, had decided that he'd changed his mind in the light of some additional information, you know, about whether or not schools should be receiving a single grade or not, you know. So I, I there, it, in a way, the fact that we don't hear that very often makes it sort of feel as though, well, these are very brave people, aren't they? They're actually mm-hmm. openly changing their mind, you know. I mean, <laughs> bear in mind, we all change our minds regularly, don't we? Um, I've t- I've t- I think I've told you the tale of, of my chair of governors. Uh, I had several chairs of governors, so I won't identify the one, who used to ask me what outcomes I wanted from governors' meetings before the meetings. Uh, and I'd say, this would be the ideal outcome of this. And he'd say, right. And then during the meeting, I was listening to what the governors said, and I, I thought, actually, they're right. I- I'll-, <laughs> I'll change my mind. In the morning, the chair of governors nearly took my door off, <laughs> saying, you know, don't you ever, when, when you and I have agreed what we want, don't you ever change your mind, don't you ever do that to me again, because you made me look stupid in front of Oh, hang on. I just changed my mind. <laughs> Lucy, I, 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 I've not prepped you on this question, but it's come to mind, because you, you triggered it in, in a response just now. But yeah, bearing in mind what the councils have been doing over COVID, you know, and how every I got a feeling that there was a fluidity about decision making. You know, th- things were so tough that you know we've just got to mu- buckle down, get on with this now, and you know, not worry too much about that, and just do it. Yeah. Have have your colleagues, because you're not actually doing this work at the moment, are you, with your study? But are your colleagues sort of giving you an indication that they've just really just jump back into life pre-COVID? Uh, or has there actually been a sort of bit of a sea change in the way that they're thinking about offering services and showing leadership to communities? It's really mixed, I would say. Um, so the first thing to say is there were legislative changes, temporary legislative changes during the pandemic that did enable councils to reduce a lot of the kind of democratic and yes making process so there were hardcore changes that enabled that to happen which have now gone back um but in terms of the cultural impact of that because that, my personal view and, and I don't want to upset some of my customers who may be offended at this but a lot of that kind of sense of bureaucracy that the, the the rules are the symbol of it but actually it is very it is very cultural because it does vary so much from council to council um, some are definitely hankering after going back to that more stable approach where it takes longer to make decisions. Some are really booking that and really wanting to um, redefine their relationship with communities. And we see we've, we're working with um, a local council actually on a partnership that was established as an emergency crisis partnership with over 50 members during the pandemic to literally just make sure we could get food parcels to people mm. that were shielding, that is still ongoing and is now like, well, what health inequalities can we tackle? And it's a, a real combination of 
um, public sector, private sector, voluntary sector, people that care about that town coming together and and stepping up and showing leadership and, and redefining the relationship with the local authority. Um, they've managed to get some funding to continue that work, right. which helps massively, but they are making a real difference to the town and they've changed that focus. And, and you know, we, we see a lot of examples like that. And then from an internal perspective, um, some are still wanting that, tr- that traditional approach to transformation, which is, Stuff like your prints to your cotter, your things will happen in this order and crush all resistance, that kind of approach. <laughs> um, and, I, and I say that flippantly, but actually yeah. a lot of the um, sort of sequential approaches to change management are about crushing resistance. It's like a real theme that goes through them all. <laughs> Um, whereas others are investing more in things like co-production and co-design, which is why we're doing a lot of that work. They're investing in um, skills around change rather than methodology around change. So they're trying to get their middle managers skilled up to be able to dance between that change and business as usual. And my personal view is that we almost need to get rid of the word change, which is ironic given that's what my business is called. But I, I think, you know, if you're working in the public sector, whether you're working for a council or a school or the NHS, you're you're there to serve the public. And people absolutely hold that value true. The, the issue is the public's needs change. So if you if you redefine your role as being responsive to community need rather than this is my stall that I have set out, this is my business as usual, oh, now I need to change something, therefore I need a special skill or a special person to yeah. come in and help with that. And I know I'm completely talking myself out of a business there, but we we do need to be able to to react to change um, and, to, and to lead change where we have to. And I, I think that there's a safety in business as usual. And I think the distinction, it's almost a bit like that distinction between leadership and management that at one point in time was helpful, but the more we develop, the more I question, you know, are, are we are we actually like just creating almost an otherness, an us and them situation that shouldn't exist because we all need to be both. We all need yeah. to be both leaders and managers and we all need to be able to make change happen, but also create stability when we need it. They're not opposing forces. So the main driver for those changes, is it, is it a sort of mayor or is it an individual or is it a body, you know, or a group? Um, it, it varies, again, from, from council to council. So some some there are some brilliant chief execs and senior people out there that are very passionate about um, making change happen. Sometimes it feels like they have to operate in spite of the system that they're yes. in rather yes. than supported by the system that they're in. Um the the government that we have at the moment has a tendency to cut to the bone in terms of stable funding. And this is adding to that problem of that BAU versus change. But then we'll say, all right, well, here's a few million for the level yeah. fund or the household support fund. And you've got to spend it within a year and show us that you've made a difference with it. So again, then you've got this sort of stable unit, but suddenly a chaos of, of money, which sounds like a first world problem, but actually is a really difficult problem yeah. for councils because they don't have the people available because they're cut to the bone to suddenly say, all right, well, here's a few million. How can we quickly make a difference with our communities with it? 
So I think there's a few things driving this kind of tension between stability and creativity and change. But we do see there are some brilliant leaders. And I'm very lucky that in my studies, I'm interviewing council chief execs. And I've been in the business for a long time. I know a lot of people. So even though I'm not delivering client work, I'm having lots of conversations all the time. And there are some brilliant, brilliant public servants in the sector that are doing the best they can, but I can't help but feel like they're doing it in spite of everything that's supposed to be helping them <laughs> rather than because of everything that's supposed to be helping them. No, but that was an I'm interesting sure that relates to schools as well. I'm sure that it's exactly yeah. the same. Yeah, I, I'll talk about so that in a minute. From my experience, and I think, Lucy, you would say from yours, actually inside a local authority, that there's there are two things. There are rules and there are ways we always do things. Mm. that are the hardest thing to come up against and the most frustrating things to come up against when you are actually trying to, to do something that's innovative. And even if the if the CEO says, yes, we want you to develop this, you know, you can't get through Treasury, you can't get through HR, mm. you can't get to it because there are people there who who this has always been the way we do it. And, you know, we're not changing now. If I change this... I may look foolish, you know. My classic, which which Lucy was present for, was the, uh, you know, we we've done really well. We we've made a surplus. We weren't supposed to make a profit, so we've made a surplus. Oh, don't report that, because if you report that, it makes the finance team look silly because they said you were going to make a loss. <laughs> so so you know you can't report that. You'll have to you'll have to find a way of losing that money. <laughs> <laughs> that was after the, uh, the part that we were working in had lost, I can't remember what it was, two and a half million over three years, something like that. And in one year, it was now sustainable, stable and making a small surplus. And yet that, was, that wasn't to be done because higher up the chain, people had already made decisions based on who knows what, because they'd never spoken to us, mm. that you weren't going to make that money. And we've reported that to the members and we don't want to. And it's that process that is so frustrating when you want to do something that's different and that works. Yeah. Um, Lucy, what's caught your eye this week? So um, two things, really. One is recruitment and selection. And that's only because I um, am in that particular module of my master's at the moment. But also it's a very live issue for our clients um, and, and for me as a business owner that, that does recruit. Um, and I... Again, similar to the, my views on the change management that we've created these very safe sequential methodologies, we've done that with recruitment and we've created and there's a whole the narrative around it is, you know, best practice. And we have to strip out all judgment. It has to be completely objective. We have to ask every candidate the same question. We have to do things like psychometric testing and and actually we as a business have, have booked that we we've said no we do um something called a 100 day challenge so we advertise a role we don't advertise a person spec or a job spec we say this is what we'd want you to achieve in 100 days write to us and tell us how you would do it and you can oh, send wow. a video right. you can send us um a report you can send us an audio file somebody built us a website like they have complete creative freedom on how they do it and in doing the research, I'm quite curious with this module because I'm like, is it going to change my mind about that process? And it's not done so far. And what's interesting is from a psychological point of view, what seems to happen, and this is based on observation and sort of discourse analysis, which is what people say, 
we seem to make a decision about a candidate very quickly. And then we use all these tools that we've designed to fit that. Which really resonated with me from a gut instinct point of view. Now, the challenge there is if you're a good person that's just doing the best you can, then that's, you know, might be okay and you've got good instincts. But how does that then link in with things like inclusion and diversity yes. agenda? And how do we tackle some of that bias? And, I, and I, I'm not, as I say, I'm halfway through the module, but I, I do find it interesting that again, it's this creating this illusion of safety. Uh, which we've done with change management as well. And I and I see that in a lot of organisations in different things. So we do that in procurement. We do that in finance. We create systems that mitigate the risk and give us this illusion of safety that actually when you really unpick it, they're not necessarily working for us anyway. And as somebody that owns a small business, I've got 15 staff. We're at a stage where I used to be able to hold everything in my head, but I can't now. So we're having to create some of those systems to create that safety and that risk mitigation. But I'm really struggling with what what's actually real, what really helps, and what yeah. creates a culture that might actually slow us down. And I think that tension between the sort of creativity, but also the risk management, I see time and time again in organizations of all different sizes. And um, Stan and I know of an organization quite well called Mindflix. This is another shout out to them. I do really value their thinking. And and they talk about um, on a personal psychological level, We I always remember it by cats and cheese because it's about your response to risk and your response to reward. And they did experiments, not mine, but previous psychologists did experiments on on mice and rats to see how sensitive they were to the smell of cheese, which is a reward, and the smell of cat, which is obviously a threat. And that there are individual differences between us as individuals in terms of are we very responsive to both are we more responsive to risk or reward or are we not really that responsive to either and i see that play out at an organizational level which is where you hear those sayings like we've got the tail wagging the dog Mm. and it's because your risk management services which are things like procurement and finance that are there to keep the organization safe are almost hindering the service delivery itself And you even see it in within departments. So like HR is an example, varies wildly. Is that a risk management service? Is it about making sure that the organization doesn't get sued? Or is it about getting the best out of the people? And even within a department, you can see that tension. And um, so I don't have an answer, but that's very much what's oh, caught that's that. Is that I think it's idea- is, is that that's more hardwired into the brain than the behaviour stuff because mm. you can manage your behaviour much better. But that's that's a hard way. And the way um, it was described to me was was you know you can be a good football manager, and you can have completely the opposite hardwired approach. I.e., you can say the big thing is we're not going to lose, or you can say the big driver is we're going to win, mm. and both those can be successful processes, but they are entirely different in their approach. Absolutely. I think as an organization, you might need to change, you might need to flip. And that's what I'm feeling is that I've always been very reward focused. And now I'm at a point where, oh, hang on, it's getting a bit bigger. Perhaps I need to adjust my mindset. But I I don't think people are often very aware of individually and organizationally. Where where are you on that spectrum? And where's where is it appropriate to be at this time? Mm. Um, Well, 
I'm conscious. I've got my what caught my eye this week, and I'm conscious of the fact that I also need to finish this recording within about five minutes to get off. Sorry, but, no, 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 because we just so everybody's aware, we um, with our guests uh, dropping out this morning and uh, Lucy joining us, we had to delay the start a little bit. So, but the thing that's caught my eye is uh, a research paper uh, from a a colleague called Anna Stansbury and uh, Ed Balls uh, of Strictly Come Dancing fame and, a, and another researcher called Dan T- uh, Turner, who have actually sort of uh, looked carefully at how the UK has struggled to to get this sort of like productivity working well across all of its regions. And uh, and basically it, it, it emphasises the importance of education, um, but particularly in STEM subjects. Um and that's, you know, well, good for me because I've been trying to push this um, digital education, you know, computer science more broadly than just studying it for GCSE. But it's sort of been used in a variety of ways because I think all businesses are going to be data, biz, digital businesses in the future. You know, that's such a key element of the, of the work that people will be doing. But the researchers sort of said that, you know, putting aside the education element, that things like infrastructure, access to finance, you know, and, and actually sort of research and development, um, you know, coordinating economic activity in a more sort of structured way and actually having a national industrial strategy, you know, are all sort of fairly significant factors in trying to address the productivity gap that exists. And And for those of us who live in the north, you know, I found it quite galling, to be honest, when the billions of pounds were spent on Crossrail, when in fact, you know, in a city that's already well connected, which is actually encouraging people to live there, which is one of the problems that there is insufficient housing for the people who want to live in London. Um, So actually, the thing is, is that for me, struggling to get from Manchester to Leeds, you know, that, that, that and actually not being able to really travel from Manchester to Sheffield, even in a car, you know, having to go over the Woodhead Pass to get to one of the major cities in the north. You know, all of these are big factors and and in why, you know, a business will struggle, you know, more so in this area than it would in another area, you know, where connectivity is so much easier. And it's not just getting goods around, it's getting people around and people feeling as though there are opportunities beyond their immediate community. But the paper also stressed the fact that yeah, we probably need to turn off or, or turn down quite strongly the the graduate route as a mechanism for you know a successful education that being viewed as a successful education i think you know i think we've all you know i've said before it's much easier to get somebody with a 2-1 degree in a humanities subject in this town than it is to get a plumber you know that that there is no no way you know my daughter needs um uh actually needs some uh, sort of uh, work done on the house, but we can't get anybody to do it, you know. Um, so all of these factors are, I think, central to what a good education is. And we've got to move away from this idea that those that go to university have had the good education and those that haven't have not, you know, and, and all of the... So I'd really urge you, you know, if, if I'll, I'll put a link at the end of the video uh, to that report um, there are some bits in the education bit which sort of I don't agree with, but the the general sort of focus of it feels right to me because looking at this big macro stuff, you know, so HS2 probably does need to be built, 
you know, not just because it gets you to London quicker, that isn't the factor, but it actually increases the number of rail lines there are that we can use to get people about, you know, the shameful decision not to have that Manchester to Leeds, you know, uh, Bradford not having, not being connected in a meaningful way. You know, all of these are really, I think, quite significant issues. Um, and, and the paper supports this sort of bigger thinking, much broader thinking than the current government have got. So... Um, Frank, I mean, because I, I travelled that for 18 months between uh, Manchester and, and uh, Wakefield, and you still can't guarantee what ta- how long it'll take you, whether you're going by car or by train. There's there's no guarantee. And people used to say, right, nine o'clock meeting, and I'd have to say, well, I'll set off about half past five, but I can't be absolutely guarantee I'll be there for nine o'clock. Can I? Can I? Because I've got this deadline. Can I just put it, put in this final bit? I went to uh, uh, right up near Maryport yesterday. Visited two schools: one primary school, about one hundred and forty pupils, and another one, a secondary school, about twelve hundred. Um, I was really impressed by the ambition of the the leaders. They were very different. One was quite dynamic; wanted to do things very differently. One was that sort of more reasoned, sort of like careful, sensitive type of leader. Both of them felt in the right school and the right place at the right time, you know. And and the you know you read a lot of you know garbage to be honest about you know what young people are like, but you know uh, you know the children that we saw, the young people we saw, you know, just a credit to to their parents and to their communities, you know. Um, it was really an uplifting visit. So I just wanted to thank those two schools for a great visit yesterday. And I'm going to have to run off. Yeah, so, well, Thanks, Lucy, for, for jumping in at the last minute. I probably owe you another lunch now. I think that's about three. <laughs> I, I think we both need to take yourself <laughs> off. Uh, and actually, it'd be great, Lucy, if we could meet that rabbit in person as well. So, uh, yeah, bumper. There is. All right. Well, thank you, Lucy, for joining us. I'm sorry I've had to curtail it. Um, But uh, we'll see everybody hopefully all being well next week. So thank you very much. Bye, Bye, everyone.